0: Welcome to the minimalist CEO podcast with Nate Lindquist. Nate created the minimalist CEO method to help business owners redefine and grow their businesses by finding new demand in places they never thought to look where there's no competition. By following his opposite thinking strategy, Nate's coaching clients have grown their business up to 40% in just two months and created tens of millions of dollars in revenue. Nate himself has launched more than 140 businesses. On the show, Nate interviews successful business owners and experts who share the secrets you can use to have a better business and a better life.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Minimalist CEO podcast. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm not sure what brought you here today, but we're going to give you a good show, a great interview. I'm excited to introduce you to a powerhouse in building businesses. He's also the founder and the owner of Quality Built Exteriors. He's built a bunch of businesses to get to that point. And um, I'm going to break that down as we introduce the man behind this business, Mike Reedy. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, It's really good to have you here. And uh, so real quick, as as we're getting started here, uh, the thing that blows my mind is you never really know what someone's been through to get to the place they are now. But if we were to break it down in maybe sort of the microcosm of the business building side of things, it looks like you swung a hammer, if I'm not mistaken, you swung a hammer, then you started overseeing hundreds of workers, then, and we'll go back and we can shine a light on each one of these. You built one of the biggest cell phone retailers in your area, then uh, real estate flipping, a real estate flipping business, and you're an investor, and also Then you built this fantastic model of the consultative sale, this customer service, business of the quality built exterior. So um, did I get that right? Because you could fact check this right now for me if I missed anything.
0: Yes. I did uh, cellular phones,
1: electronics, then real estate, and then real estate led me to construction. Awesome. So if you could, just just for our listeners, to give them a little bit of background, I mean, um, tell us about yourself and how you got started in business. I mean, what, what was the spark and where did it all begin?
0: I would say at one, one point, I was at a, uh, a party and I was 15 years old. Everybody around me was 28, maybe 30. And I was
1: 14, 15, something like that, renting my own apartment, working 50 hours a week. Do you say renting your own apartment? I want to make sure that we get you uh, loud enough. Renting you- a room,
0: so not an actual apartment, but renting a room from somebody. Was paying approximately four hundred dollars a month, and I was putting myself through high school, working from when I got out of high school to uh, ten o'clock at night and on the weekends, scraping floors in order to have enough money. And um, still, you're that young; you can burn the candle at both ends of the stick. So I was able to work a lot of
1: hours. You say fourteen years old? You were you were renting a room on your own. Yes. So. How you might have been
0: 15, but it used to be 14. It's been so long ago now that I can't remember. Maybe I was 15,
1: 14. 15 okay, so if before we go any further, so this is how you started. You're obviously making your way at a very young age, and you say put yourself through high school. I think about the dynamics. I mean, I have kids, and I think about the dynamics that have to happen, and all the support that our kids need from us. Could you expand on that real quick? How did you end up? in a situation where you were making your way at such a young age?
0: never thought about it. I just did it. Whatever needed to be done, I looked at my options and picked whatever was in my best interest at that time, and that's what I wanted to do.
1: So where was your family at this time? I mean, you, you weren't, you, at this point, you're, you're still a minor.
0: My mother was up north. I'm sorry? My mother was up north. My father went to drive trucks. I was staying with one family member that once he left told me that, I had two weeks to get out, so I had an option of moving in with a couple different family members. But I was used to doing my own thing, so I ended up meeting someone at school that his parents were retired preacher, was able to travel, and they lived in an RV and had a room that I could rent out.
1: Wow! out. So, so at that young age, I mean, you're you're this you're an entrepreneur. You obviously had a mindset of making things happen back then. What? During those formative years growing up what what kind of relationship did you have with your parents? your father being a truck driver? sounds like he was gone quite a bit or entirely, and your mom you said moved up north or was living up north. How was your relationship at that time with your parents and how did how did that unfold where I mean it sounds like a very challenging and almost frightening situation to be at that age and have to fend for yourself so I'd love to to have a better understanding I mean, I think about the, the energy and the dynamic of of uh, my upbringing, I think I would have felt lost.
0: People wouldn't understand. To me, it was no different than uh, opening door A or opening door B. I didn't really think about it like that.
1: Did your parents know that the relative you were living with was gonna kind of leave you short and have to go find your own place? Were they involved with that at all? I'm not sure. So, um, and, and we don't have to deep dive into that area. I'm curious if, if at this point-
0: well, It's better not to start, but my point was to answer your question, is I was at that age, was at a party? I was pretty much doing whatever I wanted to at that age. Everybody was 28 to 30 years old. And uh, I just remember them drinking and nobody really had a job or anything like that. And I said, you know, I'm going to start working and bust my butt as soon as I can. So when I'm at that age, I hope I'm not sitting around trying to figure out what I want to do with 28 or 30 years old. Wow. So I was working, but I put working into overdrive. So I'd go to school year-round in order to graduate, and then uh, I worked. So from there, working, I was making sandwiches. So I'm a sandwich artist by trade.
1: And then uh, I write by down trade, some trade. goals. What by trade, sorry? Subway. You're a sandwich artist? You're a sandwich artist by I trade? mean sandwich.
0: Nice. So was very good at it, but I like Subway. I was going to end up purchasing one at 18 years old, and this is back when Subways are $50,000. And I hear they're cheap again, but they went up with the Jira thing. Had somebody set to, uh, to run it, and uh, this, I guess stepped that up. I went from making sandwiches to working at Radio Shack. I wrote down some goals, and one of my goals, I remember being in class and having the DECA, the marketing or whatever teacher, tell me that my goals were too big, and I needed to scale my goals down because the stuff that I said I was going to do was just too far out there. So how old were you when
1: you wrote your goals down?
0: I read all the self-help books, what most people do. But I want to say I was in a marketing class at 16 or 17 years old, which is DEC or whatever that stands for, something entrepreneurs. Or I can't remember what it is, but they teach you how to be successful for going in business, almost like a new model business class. Wow, I, remember I had a teacher that was, that we had to write goals down for goal days. So I wrote down all this different stuff I wanted, which was, uh, you know, to her, was unattainable you said to write down what my goals are in 10 years so they ended up writing it in class but i had my own set of goals but i wrote them down and one of them was to wear a suit and um one of them was to be my own boss which sometimes being your own boss is basically like being able to bench three or four hundred pounds it's just a goal doesn't mean that it's right for you or not so um she told me that my goals were too high so I just she said you should say you're going to get a job somewhere you're going to do this you're going to make a modest income I put down that I was going to end up owning all these properties and be a millionaire and some of the stuff was a little out there for being in high school but I wrote my goals down but from the from subway next door was a radio shop and I remember the guy came over to talk to me and would tell me try to recruit me for a job I'm like ah, I don't know if I want to go ahead and do that I want to say I was. Get just getting ready to turn 18, and uh, he was like, you got to wear a suit every day. And I remember I went back home and read through my goals. I was like, well, that's one of my goals, so let me go ahead and take the job. So it was in a little country town, and uh, I went over there. Started working, and the guy trained me. He was sort of lied to me. He told me that uh, this is back when there were bagfines. So there was no bagfines.
1: Excellent. okay people
0: this is back when we saw, when they sold radio shack sold phones. Bag so he told me that uh most people like me would do 100 bag phones a month he was a pretty good boss come to find out later that the mall stores which were considered the big dogs didn't do 100 phones a month they might have done 20 or 30 so he told me that's what my goal was so I started selling farmers 100 bag phones a month next thing you know he was manager of the year the district manager is coming in and taking me to the meeting. So then the district manager put me in another store in a mall, that manager hadn't had a sales gain in four years. So when I went in there within month, number one, he was the number one producing store dollar per ticket and uh, he became manager of the year. So then after that, they were building me up for my own store, but then as a manager in training in between that, when a manager would go on vacation, they would send me into that manager store. By the time I left in the week, they had the best numbers in the whole company for the one week I was there. So they kept moving me around. And I remember they brought me to a meeting one time and uh, one of the managers was saying, hey, I can't produce numbers like that. I can't sell cell phones the way that other stores are. And I remember it was funny. The district manager was like, would you like me to put Mike Greedy in your store for a week? And then they shut up. And that was the end of the conversation. So I went to a store. To go do that, to work at that store, they were building me out a new store at the time, so I had to go build up my own store. And uh, I took over another guy's store who was maybe doing three hundred thousand dollars a year, and they were closing it down because it needed to do five or six hundred thousand to be open. So they were setting up a new location down the street. Before the end of the year, I had done eight hundred thousand dollars at that store that hadn't done over three hundred thousand in ten years. So when so I went,
1: quick as you're going along, I just. Because I, I think that you're, you're sharing a lot of numbers. You went into Radio Shack, you got a lot of underperforming stores, and you have the Mike Reedy effect. So what do you attribute that to? When, I mean, clearly you had a very committed work ethic, but what do you think made you so successful?
0: A deep desire to win.
1: Okay. So, and did you have, do you feel like you had the training and the tools at Radio Shack to implement sales programs? I mean, were you going out and doing boots on the ground? Were you doing cold calling? I mean, what were you doing? Uh,
0: it goes a little long. I can be a little long-winded. But bottom line is I have the ability to take people around me and make them the best. And then in turn, they may make me the best. I'm good in the team atmosphere. That's
1: awesome. Yeah, and teams win. That's So So then you're at this point now where back into the story, you're, you get a $300,000 store up to $800,000. Well,
0: and bottom line can- is I ended up moving up into that company, left. And then I uh, got tired of working a lot of hours district distributed change, so I quit. And I want to say I was there for two years. I guess it had to have been two years. Um, so I want to say I was 20 and I quit, and I uh, didn't know what I was going to do. And I was like, ah, pretty good at selling cell phones, so pretty good at selling satellites. So I ended up getting a contract and opening my own cell phones. And I opened them right when handhelds hit the market. So I was in the right business at the right time, and it took off. And I went to areas where were underdeveloped. So that business thrived towards the end of that. Then the market started getting saturated when you could go buy a phone out of Walmart or a pay phone. So then that business had a lifespan. And a lot of times you don't know when to get out of business.
1: Was that just luck that you got into the business when you did? I mean, did you say, did you target that market because of your experience with Radio Shack? And say, listen, I'm going to go do my own thing based on what I've learned. Or was it? And did you look at the market, or were you just like, "Well"? Didn't, this-
0: didn't look at anything. I just said, "What was I? What am I good at? I'm good at making sandwiches, and I'm good at selling cell phones. So selling cell phones seems pretty fun. That's what I'll do." Okay. So I went and sold cell phones. I didn't have any clue of the market. I didn't have anything. I just knew that I was good at selling those. But I happened to be in at the right time of the market
1: when everybody made money. So you saw the opportunity, anyways. Mm-hmm.
0: So then I happened to be in with DirecTV. I was like, I'm going to start carrying DirecTV. And right when I started carrying DirecTV, local channels came to the market. So we went from having DirecTV where you do three or four a month to where, in addition to cell phones, I was doing over 100 DirecTV a month. And back in the day, before there was the internet, or the internet was really popular, everything was 411. So I had a way that I was able to manipulate 411, and I would be uh, absolute DirecTV activations. So I would go, I had 300 numbers. I would go pick a city like California and then I would pick the area that I wanted to sell in. And then I would set up a four one, one number. They would call and ask for direct TV. They would get me in my city. We would pick up the phone and say, absolute direct TV activations, which is what we had a business license for, take their credit card over the phone, ship them a direct TV, contact the local installer and have it installed. So I was selling systems in California, Florida, any city that I wanted to, in addition to around, in addition to around here, by manipulating 411. That was good while it lasted, but eventually, cell phones had a lifespan. Direct TV had a lifespan because Verizon bought them out. Started offering their customers 20% off their Direct TV bill if they got their phone service with them. And then back in those days, there were pagers. I had 40,000 pager customers too. So um, that's what I did. Then eventually, when that that business sort of had a lifespan. I worked out of my house and kept doing the direct TV thing, taking the 411 numbers, selling the system and shipping it. And it was my brother and I were living together, but I owned a house. I bought my first house at 18 years old. So when I ended up working at Radio Shack, I just went and got a house, got a loan. Apparently I had credit, I had a couple of credit cards right before I turned 19, maybe a couple months, I bought a 18 square foot house with a hot tub and a pool. So that was a good timing. It went over real well at 19 years old having that. Yeah. So, um, when I actually started the cell phones before I ended up getting a store, I was selling out of my house where we would meet at the house. We'd hit the streets at eight o'clock and pass out flyers that said, would you like a free cell phone? By two o'clock we were back in the hot tub, hanging out with with the crew and getting in the swimming pool partying, and yeah. phone calls. Activating phones. The next day we were delivering them, and wherever we delivered, we passed out flyers, came back and did the same thing until I got enough money to end up getting a location. But that business eventually had a lifespan. So I remember I was uh, working out of my house and we were installing direct TV, a lot of them in Newport News. And in Newport News, we yep. Patch Bush Gardens and Water Country USA. So I want to say we had my brother and I had season passes every time we would go install a direct TV, we would go install it. We go to Water Country USA and Bush Gardens every single day for an entire summer. So I remember that was a pretty good time. My brother was driving back one day and I picked up the paper and in the paper it said, how would you like to make money with real estate? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'd like that. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew that that market was dying out in direct TV because of Verizon. So I went to a real estate class, the guy got up there
1: you saw, you recognized a shift in the market at that point and you saw, so we said Verizon's coming to town, they're buying up the lines.
0: I knew, I was I, had, I, I was trying to find out why my sales were dropping and customers would call me and say, well, I thought I was getting direct TV, which of course is the way I manipulated 411.
1: How exactly did that work? When you say manipulated 411, and I, I don't want to just assume that I know what you mean by you
0: that. file 411 mm-hmm. and you have a name that's up there, then if I have, let's just say Walmart Walmart will show up at the list. Okay. I have AAA, Walmart. AAA is before the W. It shows up first. If you have AB, it'll show up first. So the way that I figured that out is sitting on the phone with 411 and asking the people for months on end to give, to give different keywords of how it came up in their computer and having them tell me back how that worked.
1: It was like 411 SEO.
0: Everybody 4-1- down 411 back. You would dial 411 and say, yes, I would like Walmart or yes, I would like Applebee's. If I had a restaurant, I would be something Applebee's, A Applebee's or AB, but AB came before A, there was a way to manipulate it. So absolute was a good word.
1: Yeah. Nobody uses 411 anymore, they use Google. But that was essentially keyword optimization pre-internet searches. 411 SEO. 411 SEO. So that's awesome. And then you notice a decline in the market. You saw the ad for real estate, and you thought, "I'm going to go and start investing in real estate." Yeah. So I what went to. Where did you learn? Was it a, was it like a, a Carlton Sheets or? or
0: I read all those books, but uh, it was the um, an organization that sells other people's organizations. So essentially, when you go to all these big names that you hear on TV, um, it's basically a sales group that travels around and sells somebody else's product. So their job is to sell but the information that they are selling can be valuable. They're just charging for it. So, but it is all information is valuable. So I ended up going to a class and the way it works is you pay some money, then you come to another one where they try to sell you. So everything's about sales along the way you're getting information. So I got some information there and whatever I saw to do, I went and did that. So when I went from a day class to a three-day class, the three-day class was talking about signing up for bigger classes, like how to learn foreclosure, lease options, notes, and all that kind of stuff. But they talked about mobile home. As soon as the three days was over, I went and bought a mobile home for 500 bucks and turned around and sold it for 4 grand. Now this was back when lots rents were 100 dollars so I'd just buy them on the lot without earning the land, and then I started selling, flipping. So my very first deal right out of class, within three or four days, I made 3,500 bucks. It's like hmm, seems to be pretty cool. So then I started buying them, and sometimes they would have a little chuck. Trouble selling. So I recognized that a lot of people didn't have the money. So what I would do is I would buy them. I would get my money into it back with the down payment or break even within a month or two months. And I would end up selling them at a certain dollar amount at a certain interest rate. Within six months, I'd created two hundred fifty dollars or $300,000 in notes. And I would just sit back, give them an account number, I'd give each one of them an account number to deposit it in. If it was in on the first, they made their mortgage payment. And then that's what that's what i did as time went on and they started raising lot rents i had to get into houses so i was like the inventory for lots and some of the people that own the parks aren't really don't like what i'm doing only the people that had a lot of money were easier to deal with so i would eventually just go to the parks and whenever they had people that were behind on their payment i'll say look i'll make the payment and take the trailer give me the title and then i'll guarantee it just i will approve somebody and put them in and they'll be owners and then buy it back for me so i ended up getting a lot of that money But then from there, I went on the houses, so I did some flips. And then I ended up holding some rentals, but I was in my 20s. And the books tell you, I can take you to a class and give you a whiteboard, and I can show you in a matter of 30 minutes how to be a millionaire, show you a straight line up. But what the books don't tell you is what happens when chapter two isn't working. Right. So that's what the books didn't, didn't tell you. But everything usually worked for me. But then when the market laid off half the people eventually I ended up holding and having residual income where I ended up having about a hundred rental properties or a hundred total units. Okay. And um, half of them went vacant and I went through some struggles where I was getting less rent. So I ended up having to get get out of a lot of them by getting rid of them, getting people to take loans back over. And that was a very tough road. But Mm -hmm. by doing all the apartments I learned, how contractors do. So a lot of contractors don't know what they're talking about. They may be selling. They may come in and do something different. I learned why you replace the entry door instead of why you repair it. Because when you repair it, you have to come over five times. It will constantly leak air when you replace it. It's a one-time charge. It's has in the labor store. Um, so I learned everything about a house.
1: It's a one-time charge. And then you, your voice trailed off. So so I
0: can... You sell a door. If I come to repair your door, once the door is warped where the seals are messed up, I've never been able to get it right. So if I come over and I repair your door, you're going to pay me a fee. A week later, when you're having a similar problem and it's leaking water or leaking air, you're going to want me to come back out. I'll have already have charged you. So then that's how contractors, a lot of them get the bad name of, look, I'm not going to call you. They're not calling me back anymore. Yeah, because they've been over there three to four times to repair the door. You don't repair a door, you replace it. You put a brand new one in So repairing something that opens and closes every single day it's like a waste of money, but I learned little tricks like that. But I learned how to work on 100-year-old houses. I learned about reglazing windows. I ended up working with the crews and doing a lot of it myself. So I would hire a crew to do plaster. And I would say, look, here's the deal. I'm going to hire you. But you need to teach me how to do plaster. And they would be like, I'm not going to teach you because you're going to take my job. I said, well, I'm going to work for free. I'll bring in all the material. I'll do all the legwork. You just show me how to run plaster, and I'll be free for you for a month. So then, they, if they agreed to it, then I would give them the job. Then I would come in and they teach me how to do swirl and everything. And I did the same thing with electric plumbing and everything, where I had a good hands on experience to know how to do all the products myself. So if, you, if, I, if, you, if I came to, if I looked to hire somebody, I would ask them how they were going about doing it, if they were a professional. Then I learned how to tell because I did the work one, how long it would take. So if they were giving me a number and the number was too cheap, I would know that they don't know what they're doing and I'm not going to hire them. If the number's too expensive, then I'm going to ask them how they're doing it and why it's so expensive and what I'm willing to pay because I know what the going rates are for this type of work. It's different if you're coming from a retail company, if you're coming from a sub or from something else, but fixing up all the houses was in order to make me a contractor, but I never wanted to be the contractor. I was an investor, but God had different plans for me. So what seemed like a bad experience for me and having all the houses and going through having to get rid of a lot of them, rid of a lot of them because what I used to get for fifteen hundred in the new market was only getting seven fifty, and banks weren't loaning the way that they were in order to get better rates, and some of the banks were even going out of business. But that experience, what looked bad to me, gave me all the knowledge that I have right now, and with that
1: knowledge, real real quick, Mike, because you've covered a lot of ground, and, and you obviously are uh, someone who's fascinated with learning and learning from your mistakes. You know, I, I call that the mistakes laboratory. But you, one of the things I teach in the minimalist CEO process is every time you're going after a goal, and you look at all the different goals you just described that you've been going after. I mean, you went after building the cell phone business, learning and how to be the guy who wore the suit. You had that goal. And then you had the goal of, you know, getting into investing in real estate. And you had to do repairs. And you had to, you, it's like, these seem like the formative years where you learn the lesson of, you got to have and, and be able to find in that lesson, a collateral benefit Of the process. So if you all of a sudden have a a bad business experience or you lose properties or you're dealing with a problem with a recession, you're also having an added benefit of noticing when people are wasting a customer's money. You were, you noticed when you had someone repair a door when they were wasting your money as an investor. And I look at what you're doing. And, and, you know, as I move into some of the other questions here, you're, you're in the quality, quality built exteriors business and you're doing all these different kinds of work. It seems like you really, you honed your ability to see the right way to do things, the right way to charge for them and to really educate your customers. If, you know, I think if I did my research correctly, sometimes it's better to replace something than it is to fix it. Sometimes something needs to be just torn out and something new needs to be put back in. And so it's not all about just making the money and just getting the business. Sometimes it's about saying, no, listen, that's not the right way to do it. And I think that's pretty rare. So is that right? Is that sort of like the... My
0: system is I only allow certain things. So I have sales when they go into the house. I only allow them to sell certain products. I won't sell things based on, hey, we can make a sale. So we lose a lot of sales because people, they're not a good fit. When I say they're not a good fit, they might want me to do something that I know is not going to last. So I'm not going to do that because that's going to give me a bad name. I'm telling you, you shouldn't do this. So sometimes I will go into people's houses and they'll want to spend... X amount of money, but their goals align with selling in two years. And then what we'll do is say, look, instead of spending 60000 we recommend that you spend fifteen, which doesn't make any sense for us to tell you to do this and, and do these things because these are the things that are going to help you sell your house. So it's more about having the knowledge on both sides, one, to uh, understand what I learned was what the contractor, I learned what the contractor side of it, so I'm able to solve The working man's problem. I'm able to recruit the best people and I I know what their issues are and I know what their issues are with companies and with retaining help because I experienced it. I experienced it with me doing the work and people holding money for me when I need to pay my bills. So I learned what it's like to struggle and have somebody play games with your money. So the people that work for me, I don't play any games with their money. One thing anybody can say about us is we always pay. do good work you get paid but i only hire the best so uh, what my goal is is to basically and what i learned from it is you can either focus on the people in the relationship and doing the right thing or you can either make the sale so making the sale isn't always the best thing being able to be a benefit and offer uh, a product coming to me is like going to your doctor so that means you're looking for a prescription either we have a good fit or we don't either You're going to believe what we say, and we're going to give you a prescription we think you should take. And if you believe that and it makes sense, then you should do business. If it doesn't make sense, you should go to another doctor and get a different prescription. The difference is is we carry a good enough name and have been in business longer where you know that we will back up that prescription if it don't work and give you another one, in a sense, without charging you to uh, have another visit. Yeah, right. So basically, that's that's the best way that I can explain it, because people think hiring a contractor is all about getting the negotiating the lowest price. I was able to beat him down two or three hundred. Problem when you beat people down in this business is sometimes they're desperate and they happen to cut corners that you won't know about. So there's a cost of what it costs and there's a cost of what someone's willing to do it for. And sometimes when you end up sacrificing because you have to doing a certain quality and a certain level of work and having a certain amount of guys, then um, the customers don't understand or people on that side of the table don't understand that, you know, that's what it costs. That's a fair price, you know? So there's things that aren't a fair price and things that are, but there's a certain cost to doing business. It's not how low you can get it. It's what the product costs, what the overhead costs, what the people cost. So there's just a different way that you go about it. But in um, all these different experiences over the years, Taught me a vast array of knowledge where I know networking, running wires, audio, video, electric plumbing. I know it in and out. Um, yes. Framing, and we're constantly learning along the way. I know marketing. I've been doing nothing but marketing for my entire life. So I'm a better marketer than most marketing advertising agencies. Now, everybody has some little thing that they're doing that works really good. Um, but for me, in my experiences, I generally have a certain system. But if people were to find some system, some system and some guidance is better than no system. So unless you have failed knowledge of what works for you, there's a learning curve that you can go. So you can either do this on the learning curve or you can end up shooting it up, you know? So
1: knowledge is
0: power, but having a system, any system, so at least you have some groundwork is better than nothing else. So what I had to do was Go through the school of hard knocks of learning what different systems to apply. You know, but I went through learning everything in order to find the right industry. The industry found me and I didn't want to do construction. People were calling me when I was getting rid of my houses, asking brokers, asking me to help somebody fix up this house or help them fix that house. Now I wish I could have said that, yes, I was a better investor than I am a contractor. But I know loans. I know financing. I know what in and out. and I have a lot of experience in it. Most of the time, I know investments better than a lot of the people that are just getting into it. But sometimes you can't tell people what to do. They're going to do what they want to do and they're not going to listen to you.
1: Mike, if I could just bring it back a little bit, because you're you're uh, you're actually answering some of the questions I have already. Sure. If you were to look back at this, you know, I, when you shared the idea of sort of the peaks and valleys of trying to figure out what's going to work in marketing, what's going to work out with building a team, what's going to work out with growing the business, I'd love to ask, what are some of the things that you, you know, in the minimalist CEO, I like to look at what you cut away, eliminating things versus adding things to begin with. And I find that some of the most successful people have a real clear picture of what they cut away, what they said no to, to be able to have that focus. So if you were to look at some of the things that you did to grow your business to $4 million in sales, and then to move beyond that, what are some of the things that you had to cut away and say no to? That might be, I think it would be a great way to shine a light for other businesses that haven't made it to that point. To Eliminate. Things you had to say no to, things that were excessive, that were distractions from your ultimate goal. Rules. You got rules. When you say rules.
0: Here it's free As long as they do their job, to do what they want. They can come and go as they please. As long as they get their job done, they want to take a break if it's 15 minutes and it's 30 minutes. So giving people freedom. People are the success of a company. As long as you can drive it in the right place, the people that work for you are what is successful but you have to make people feel a part of something if everything is military style then they might do it because they have to but having people that want to come to work and and like it that you can solve their issues is the first start so whether you're solving the customers issues or your people that work for you issues so the traditional rules that most people have is i don't have them
1: how did you figure that out? Like, at what point did you cut away the rules? Because, I mean, obviously, at some point, I think we I don't all... Mean, I didn't
0: like them. I don't like them. <laughs> Yourself. I don't like them. You
1: shouldn't either. <laughs> I, I feel very much the same way. And I think what happened was I brought an operations director into my uh, one of my companies uh, when I was younger, in my late 20s, and... I ended up, uh, you know, doing the formal. This is how you let someone go. This is the formal how you give someone the guidelines for having a meeting. And it just got so formal along the way that I could see people losing their energy. So for me, at that point, I realized like, how can I break the mold and create a culture where people are getting caught doing the right thing and where it wasn't about rules, where it was about where do you want to go? What do you, you, know, making it outcome, making the outcome that I needed to measure my employees was so clear. That as long as they figured out a way to get it, and they did it in a way that was in alignment with integrity and with our values that like, teach them to win, you know, teach them to win by figuring it out. And, uh, you know, it's funny, we teach kids, I think, in in schools, that uh, trying to find a shorter path is cheating. And there's a lot of examples of that, we could come up with lots of examples, you know, the kids who get in trouble for not staying on the path when they're walking into the school, they might run across the lawn. It's like, no, you have to stay on the path and they get in trouble for that. You know, that would be an example. So I'm with you with the the rules.
0: Like people say, separate business from your personal life. Your business is your personal life if you're working here more than your time. So I believe there's no separation. I
1: want to know what's going on. Talk to me. Get to know people. I love that. So that might lead to another example. What would be maybe? Could you give two other examples of things that you, you threw out? Like the traditional business does it this way. We threw this out, and it's helped the business. There's so many.
0: But then again, I don't know what the traditional place is because I've worked for someone from the time I was 15 to 18, and then I worked another job from 18 to 20, and I haven't worked for anybody ever since then.
1: So maybe we look at what would you never allow to happen in your business? What would you never add to your business? to make add to it? Yeah. Things just wouldn't do.
0: Well, I guess it just depends on what aspect of it that you're talking to, but I guess... I would never uh, get rid of handwritten checks.
1: you got to know where the money is.
0: I like to look at the check stub. Computer's too hard to follow. You know, so um, like in, in, it depends on each business. So primary things, what I would say is whatever helps you, whatever anybody else tells you, whatever is working for you, don't change. So you can take a look at the things that um, people are telling you, but if a ball is moving and that ball stops it's very hard to get it moving again so if the ball is moving and you're going to apply stuff to your business don't go all out there's a lot of things that people are doing right there's only a few things that separate the people that are making a lot of money from the people that aren't so what did they say what is the difference between a person working the same job that is saved at 50 years old for 25 or 30 years in order to be a millionaire and someone that's not, there's only a few things that they're doing that's different. So maybe they're just putting 10% away, maybe they're saving coupons, everything else they didn't say. So my thing is, is I have a lot of people that feel like they're lost when they're actually doing a lot of things right, That you should take new information and you should try it out in baby steps. Before you do a complete 360, so you don't stop the ball from moving. So yeah. what I don't, well, I guess what I would say I've thrown out is bringing in certain information too fast. Do it one step at a time so at least you can do one thing right. Don't do five things right. Focus on one thing. So
1: That's huge. I love that.
0: So pick one thing. If you're going to help somebody, you don't got to help two or three, help one. So if there's, you've got 20 problems, let's just solve one today. How do we solve one? We're going to add something new to the business. And I got all these different things that I'm being taught to add to the business. Let's pick one thing that I know that I need to improve. And let's focus on that. Let's write them down. Let's pick one thing that I know I can do today or tomorrow. Let's just start with that and implement that. Let's get one thing right. And instead of trying to do 20 things, but that same rule applies all the way. If you've got 10 things to do, do one and complete it fully and be done with it. Then move to number two. I'll be part of one, part of two, part of three, part of four, part of five, part of six. Do one thing at a time.
1: Did you have times where, Mike, where you you tried to do too many things at once and had to learn that lesson the hard way?
0: Yeah, I wasn't getting anything done.
1: <laughs> yeah, the illusion of multiple so,
0: if I do one thing, it's going to get done. The rest are going to have to wait.
1: The one thing if that it'll be, it'll be, be there be-
0: tomorrow, I'm going to get, if I sit down to do something, maybe I've got 10 things I want to get done today. I'm at least going to finish one before I move to two and the rest are going to move. If they're, there, if they're there when I'm ready to leave it will be there tomorrow. And then tomorrow, but whatever I have gotten done will have been done. It'll be
1: 100%. Do the hell out of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, do it right. Don't rush it. Double check it if you're feeling tired. Leave and come back. I mean, some things don't leave you the luxury of doing that. But when people come to me all the time I have, a, and they're not able to handle lots of things, I just say stick with one.
1: Yeah, I love that. What's the saying move miles in one direction instead of millimeters in every direction. I love that. I think um, uh, another question I'd love to ask, and I, I think this is a challenge that a lot of business owners face is moving from the you know half million to the million dollar level and then moving from the million dollar level to four plus million dollar level. I know there's a balance between courage and commitment, but I see a lot of I see a lot of business owners trying to do too much in alignment with what you're talking about.
0: People want to get big. People think that being big is the answer to everything so they can go brag. So people want to be fancy. The business will tell you what to do. You don't need to tell the business what to do. So do one thing and be really good at it. And when the business tells you you need to get a location, you'll know when you need to get a location. Until then, work out of your house. Some people don't need a location. Like me, I work out of my house. And at 930 at night when I'm in my underwear watching Walking Dead and people are knocking at the door to get paychecks, Business told me I needed an office. And I was like, why are you here at 9.30? They're like, I just left the job at 8.30. You know, so the business will tell you when to grow. So then people are like, oh, here's what you need. Here's what you need to do. You need to do this. You need to hire a person for this. You need to hire a person for that. I have a philosophy that's backwards from a lot of people. I think if you're overstaffed and underworked, you're not making any money. If you're overworked and understaffed, you're making money. So that's the rule that I live by. I make sure everybody has too much work. That they can
1: get to it. That's So that's me. interesting. So I know there, and I share this. You don't
0: want to, if you're not too sure if you're making money, then at least make sure that stuff's getting done and it's moving, that's moving at a fast pace. So and if your people are coming to you saying that we need more people, that may be true, which is the business telling you what to do, or maybe people telling you that they don't want to work that hard. But if you have more work than you can get to, you're in the right direction. Yeah. So you want to basically have less people. The more people you hire, the less money you're going to make. The more people that you hire, the more drama you got to deal with. You only hire the right person one at a time. I guess everything, if I had a rule, would be the one at a time rule. So uh, people say, how do you grow? I grow one one right person at a time.
1: time. One right person at a time.
0: Yeah, most people come to me. So very rarely do I run an ad. Somebody will come to me, and if they're the right person, I'll hire them. If I think they're the right person, sometimes they're not, I'll give them a shot. But one right person at a time, because you can hire somebody that is the right person, but in order to get them trained to do everything the way that you want them to do, it can take up to a year. But then there's the person that comes with a traditional micromanaging type company and the boss that wants you to know he's the boss. No different than the person that wants to be this big, gigantic company. So the first thing I see young entrepreneurs doing is they're getting too big too quick, and sometimes the business that you're in is not a business to get real big. In. And who said that you wanted to be? A business? Oh wait,
1: sorry, that kind of you dropped off a little bit. Sometimes the business that you say that again. Sometimes the business that you're in can only get so big. So I look at small service businesses, Mike, and I mean you've gotten the business in into the multiple seven figures, and I see small service businesses that are doing construction and are doing home services. And some of them are doing commercial services, but I find out that a lot of them have job opportunities they can't respond to, and yet they're not paying themselves very well. And there's uh, they're out trying to do project management, they're out trying to do estimating, they're out trying to do they're not appreciating their client very well. There's clients who aren't hearing from them until things are slow. And um, what I do when I work with a lot of clients in that situation is that I I help them get a clear picture of what work they really are doing well and then what work needs to be done by someone who's going to do it well, and then to be committed to finding that person, finding a way to put that person in place. What would you to say say to someone in that situation um, in the small service business space where they're working their tail off, they're grinding the hours, they have new business opportunities, but they're wearing all the hats and they say, oh, I just want the cash flow to get the next person. What would you say to them?
0: Things one is they're trying to do three things at once instead of one at a time. So most of the time I find that they're bouncing around in their schedule my people do the schedule you go to one customer and finish that one then you can go to the other so each crew that i have which i have lots then i basically take a company and i restart with taking everything they did and throw in the trash and here's how we do things so they try to show up and do paul today peter tomorrow come back to paul and then go to johnny you do one at a time you knock out one person at a time and be done and allow yourself enough time on the schedule where the longest it could possibly take you to do the job, put that down. That way you're always finishing ahead of time. So I set my expectations up to where we're going to win. A goal is not something that's going to be hard. It's something that you should achieve and pass. So set a goal for yourself that there's no way you're not going to get the job done in that amount of time. Equate for everything that can happen. Then the next person you call and you move them forward. So would you rather get pushed back two or three times to get your bathroom done? Or would you rather get moved to the head of the schedule? So that's the first thing I'd say is make sure that you're not doing too many things. Start with the first thing, which is your schedule. So you can start with marketing, but you got that's usually the number one thing that I find that they do. And then the next thing is they're trying to be too big. They're trying to say, hey, I've got four and five people working for me. You just need one. Get one right person. And it'll tell you when you need to. When you're booked out for 30 or 45 days, and then I bring on another crew with a category. So like we've been doing painting for a while, but I've got a guy that's been in business for three generations, the whole family. So I'm taking him, building a comp- taking him over to us and then rebuilding what they've done for three generations by basically putting a schedule down, having a crew lined up once that crew's booked out for 30 or 45 days. Once it's 30 days, it's good. Once we hit 45 to 60, then I bring on another crew move that forward. Now I got two crews. Once I'm out far enough where it becomes tough to wait, then I bring on another one, if that's possible. Sometimes you can't have the right crew. They got to be able to do the work. They got to be the right personality. They got to be able to be the right fit. But most importantly, we don't generally bring on people unless they have 15, 20 years experience. So what my model is, is I don't train. I take the best from the competition. So when you have reached the max over there with all you can do, then come sit down and talk to me and we'll talk and I'll pay you more than they've ever paid you. But I expect the best job. That's what I do. So I recruit top level talent.
1: One thing you talked about, Mike, that again, something that resonates really strongly, uh, we teach our clients. It's like there's linchpins in business. You've got to have lead development, lead conversion, and then you have to have production capability. And in production capability, we generally, uh, when I'm working with a client one to one or even in the group uh, mentoring that I do, um, we tell them, and, and this is sort of, in alignment with what you're saying here, is what's your max capacity? Like if you don't know for the crew, the team and the project that you have, how many people it's going to take, how long you have it on the calendar and when it will be delivered and set those expectations very clearly over under promise and over deliver, then you don't know when to move that little dot down to say, hey, I need another person or I need another crew. You and
0: it knows what it's going to take, but you know the worst case scenario would what it should
1: take. Right. And that's the thing is the idea of Making the decision because the job schedule and crew, the production capability, your max capacity told you. And what I've learned also is the people who look at that for a year or two can get really good at estimating the time it's going to take. And if the job's estimated properly, then there's plenty of profit in there for everybody and plenty of resources to hire the right people. Otherwise, you got to go back and look at it and say, oh, you don't have enough money to hire the right people. There's a problem with your pricing, there's a problem with your timing. Or you put too many people on too many jobs, you're distracted, you're not getting them done enough, and you haven't set up the parameters to get paid on time. And when I see those ingredients over and over and over in the small service business, it's it's just like, I mean, you made it so simple. You said, get the schedule right, put a crew out there, book it out 30 to 45 days. And when your your production capability is telling you, hey, listen, we're maxed out, we need another crew, you either get one more person or you you've started or been working on the process to get one more crew.
0: Yeah, it's different strokes for different folks, so I do a lot of stuff by hand. I have calendars on the wall. We have the computer, but I make all the people in the office handwrite them with a magic marker on the wall for me so I can come and look at it five minutes and see what's going on. But if you're good with computers, you should do what you're good with, but don't ever lose touch of what you, how you can control the business. You know, But the business will tell you what to do. The business will tell you when you need a location. It will tell you when somebody else, most people want to need something because they wanna be this big shot. But there's nothing wrong with doing you know, one thing and doing it good. When you're supposed to have more, you will. But don't all of a sudden set yourself up in a situation where you think you're going to have more when you haven't even delivered the first step. So no different than, uh, I'm gonna go out and buy a tractor trailer truckload of paint or printers. For all these, this business I'm going to sell, we'll go sell the job first, have the money lined up, and then go buy it. So I had somebody come to me today to uh, buy a couple of dump trailers to start a dump trailer business, and that's what they are going to do. So I was like, well, who are you going to do it for? I don't know. All they're trying to do is go spend the money and then buy a dump trailer. So I have the, the 40-foot ladder rule. So you can go buy a 40-foot ladder, which makes sense. To get started, sometimes it's cheaper to hire a man with a forty-foot ladder. So now you get a man and a forty-foot ladder. So until you get enough business that it it makes sense to buy a forty-foot. So that's kind of one of those philosophies that I go on. But a lot of people they want to cross the goal line before they've even learned how to ride a horse.
1: I love I love the the analogies that you're sharing, and I think the examples that you're sharing too. If I think back to some of my biggest crash and burns, it was having the story that I had to live up to instead of writing the story as you go and letting the story tell you, hey, this is the next step. This is the next step. Anytime I, I made a commitment, you know, there are times where you got to push yourself. You got to say, hey, I'm going to... You know, I think early on when I had the, my marketing agency or when I created the sign company or when I started doing the video production group, I had to go out and buy the camera. <laughs> I had to go get the camera. I had to have a studio. Because back then there was no place where I could rent a studio with a sixty-five thousand dollar camera. However, I was really aggressive because you know people can be the most valuable for ROI and the most expensive and costly for ROI. So I found the right people, built out the studio. But I remember that feeling of once I bought the camera, I was willing to do the work. the The video production studio started to grow because I was stepping up. But the opposite could be true. Hey, now we need two more cameras and two more producers because we're going to get all this work. We're doing this marketing camp, and I think if I if I ever hear myself here's what I'm going to do. The first thing that comes to my mind, if it's not my wife saying it, is what day is it on the calendar? How many days out is it? What's it going to take to deliver that? Who on the team is going to do it? Who do you have to add? What's the price going to be? What's the ROI? And uh, what I've really noticed is anytime there's a book called Ego is the Enemy, Ryan Holiday. What I love about Ego is the Enemy is he says, listen, when you're telling yourself, I'm going to do this, you believe it. And if when you say you're going to do it and you believe it, you practice not doing it or having a story that's so exciting. and Your ego gets that little rush, and that little boost. You're less likely to do what
0: done. you're most scared of. Then once you get that, you got to get the ball moving. Once the ball's moving, don't uh, don't put too much money into the ball until the ball starts making money. Just get it moving. So the first thing you got to do is get it moving. So most people never get the ball moving. And sometimes you might have the wrong ball. Moving. You might try to remove a square block when you should be moving a ball. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in order to get started, getting started is its own set of rules. Once you're started... Taking
1: the leap, the net will appear.
0: From what you were telling me in your previous question, most people that have a company that have already started, they've already been past that commitment. What do they got to do to get to the next level? So, for instance... The difference between the reason it's so hard for a company to get to that first million—that's usually a goal—is because, in order to get to that first million, you don't have the infrastructure or the advertising to support it. Once you get to that first million, it's easier to do two and three because you've already built up to a point that now you have a big enough infrastructure and a big enough basically a big enough infrastructure that it's easier to scale from there but getting to that first million is usually the hardest but then again there's plenty of businesses that make a fortune on two or three hundred thousand but if you're leaving a job making a thousand dollars a week and you start a new company and you're able to earn a thousand and work for yourself you should be happy alone with that you shouldn't be trying to own the city that you're in where nobody else can work if you can run a monopoly just be happy you were able to make that jump but making that jump it's just something you've proved to yourself, like I can lose some weight or anything like that. A lot of times it's much easier to take those same goals and align them with working for another company. So you're going to lower your risk if uh, you work for a bigger company that's already found out a success formula and do good for them. you know. But a lot of times people have an inner drive to prove for themselves. I mean, I couldn't really get a job working at the places that I wanted to with the stuff I wanted to do because nobody would hire me because... When I would interview to be a carpenter, I'd be like, "Are you great?" I'd be like, I'm all right. right. Like, oh, we're looking for like, can you do brick? I mean, I know how, and I can read a book, you know. But uh, you know, I'm not the greatest that you've ever seen. Well, how good are you running plaster? Oh, I can do sand swirls on the wall, but on the ceiling, I'm all right. I'm not that good. So and I was like, but I can supervise. Oh, we need someone who knows all aspects of it. So I wasn't able to really get a job because in my interviews, I didn't lie. And most of the time, after two or three questions, they would put up the questionnaire and just start asking me directly. So, I mean, I was pushed into this. I mean, but the best 20 years of busting my butt got me to where I'm at, where I figured out systems that work for me. But those same systems can be applied to a company that's already making money where don't quit your day job in order for your hobby business to uh, support your income if uh, the business hasn't even told you to quit your job yet. So if you're going to start another business, wait for the All business to tell you what
1: to do. All the way back to the beginning to wait for your business to tell you what to do. i well, what yeah. to do. My wife tells me to take
0: out the trash, take out the trash. I
1: don't know. <laughs> I have a rule. If I walk through the kitchen past the trash and one of the kids hasn't gotten it, which is pretty rare, I just get it.
0: Cash beans full? Hey,
1: cash it doesn't need to be dumped. It doesn't, for the kids, it says it needs to be pushed down so they don't have to take it out. But uh, the time is telling me right now that we got to wrap this up. And I've, I've enjoyed the interview. And I think what's interesting is you just never know where it's going to go. I like the advice that you shared. And I just think that people could learn a lot from you just by watching this. So I'm glad that we took the time to do it. And you have a, a, a unique approach to the way that you've built your businesses. And the story is interesting, fascinating, just to see how you made those turns and twists from a very young age. So uh, Mike, I just, I'd just i love to ask you uh, again, real quick, if people want to go learn more about you or connect with you, um, and we'll put this information in the show notes, where should they, where should they go?
0: Oh, you mean like website-wise?
1: Well, if, if people wanted to email or ask you questions, they're like, hey, I love what you said about this. I want to know more. I mean, is it, should they just go to your website and just...
0: Go to my website and then they can email from there, which is qualitybuiltexteriors.com.
1: Qualitybuiltexteriors.com. We'll put that down in the show notes. Okay. That's perfect. And we'll put it on our blog, we'll put it on our YouTube page and Facebook. So we'll make sure everyone has a chance to see that.
0: So the people and, write in and they can write something over from the, uh, the website and uh, they have some questions. As long as they're relative, I would respond.
1: That's cool. Cause you have nothing else going on, right? You got to watch walking dead in your underwear. That's probably, you don't you got to even
0: 150 miles an hour at all times. <laughs>
1: so, uh, you do have a, a laid back quality to the way you communicate, but I can tell you got a ton going on. And I think having the ability to just kind of calmly do your one thing at a time comes through in the way you present yourself. So I, I dig that. Well,
0: I appreciate you having me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mike, thanks for, I was just going to say, thank you very much for being on the uh, podcast. Uh, I appreciate your time here. And, uh, it's been great. I've enjoyed it. And um, I think our listeners are getting a ton of value out of this. So uh, thanks again. Thank you. So again, this is Nate Lindquist with the Minimalist CEO Podcast. We just had a great interview with Mike Reedy. And uh, there'll be more information in the show notes. You know, if you're if you're just tuning into this at this point, you've kind of had it on in the background, go back and listen to some of the nitty gritty. Mike had some really cool stuff to share about what he did that's very different from, I think, what a lot of business owners would would uh, would teach. Some really good insights from the boots on the ground on a guy who's done it, multiple seven figure business and um, done it through the tough stuff. So we'll be back soon. And uh, thanks for visiting and enjoy the rest of the day.